0: Hello, hello, hello. Howdy, folks. That was a terrible way to start this. This is another episode. I suppose the first thing I, like, have written here that I need to, like, address is I'm kind of worried that there's going to be some weird noise in this episode, like, in the back. I mean, I feel like I talked about this previously, but I guess we'll just jump into life updates really quick, I suppose. I moved to Nashville, and moving... You know from milwaukee to nashville has been a big jump but it also it's kind of changing the setting in which i'm recording in i guess in my apartment in milwaukee i lived in like this apartment that i didn't really have any furniture for so it was just pretty much an empty ballroom of an area that i recorded in. and it was all like old wood floors and stuff so it was probably kind of like echoey at times and here i'm in like a studio with furniture and there's a dog here with me who might make noise once in a while. You know who you are, Smokey. He has not reacted at all. But I don't know if you hear a miscellaneous sound here and there. it Might be him, or there's like traffic down below me. So it might be that too. There's been a lot of you know rowdy people out here going on Broadway, getting a little getting a little crazy to some country music. But but yeah. So the move's been exciting. I'm here now. Kind of has been you know putting a pause on my episode recording slash researching slash everything else, because it's been a busy time, you know? Quit one job, start a new job, move from one city to another, you know? We're, we're doing the damn thing. This should have been a great time for me to be kind of working on this because I haven't really been working for like a couple weeks because I took like time to move whatever between starting my new job and quitting my old job and I just haven't done that. I mean, it was the holidays um, and I got sick, as also you can probably hear maybe that my voice sounds weird, but could have definitely been researching and I have been a little. I kind of started this one project that I've really been interested in for a really long time and I've kind of been enjoying like delving into it, but I was originally gonna like have that be this week, but I wanna do more research on it and I don't feel like confident in it yet that I have all the information I wanna have. So that one got kind of pushed back. I kind of also stumbled upon a different thing that I want to talk about that I will, I guess, later in this episode, that's a little more pertinent to the area that I now find myself residing in. And also another huge thing that kind of came about was Idaho case that I've kind of been touching up on here and there at the beginning of all my episodes, I think, so far. I think it's probably been mentioned on every one. They, A, arrested somebody for the quadruple like homicide, four counts of murder. And in my either strategic planning of releasing this episode or me being super lazy, they have also released the affidavit for this man's arrest, which I kind of figured the topic I want to cover later in this episode my like actual, you know, project. It's a little shorter but since this affidavit came out, I think we can kind of delve into this a little because I think as a podcast, me, myself, and I very invested in this case, and I pretty much talk about it relentlessly to anyone who will listen, which is super suspect and creepy, but I'm just like really into this and really hope that they get these four people and their families get some justice for this horrible thing that happened. Either way, the, I guess we can just start, I mean, I'm pretty sure everyone kind of heard the last, like, thing I believe on my last episode was they were kind of looking for this white Hyundai car that was seen around the scene, and then the next thing we kind of heard was that they had made an arrest. They had arrested this Brian Coburger dude real piece of work as it's turning out for the four murders committed in moscow idaho the affidavit looks like it was signed 1229 so they really kind of snuck this in at the end of the year here and i mean i guess i could just quick like google search when he was arrested insert you know waiting music here So yeah, he was arrested, it looks like, on the 30th for the killings. And the affidavit was signed the 29th. Let's dive into this puppy. So this affidavit, the first thing I noticed when I was kind of reading through it, it's longer. I mean, not that I have a huge history of reading these. I think the first one I read was the one for the Delphi case that we talked about. And that one looks, it was eight pages. This one is... 19 19 pages I believe and of course there's like some redacted stuff so I'm sure there's like more paperwork to go along oh 18 pages excuse me but I'm sure there's you know I guess they're all different which I actually also thought was kind of interesting just like the way of I guess it depends who's writing these in the case of the Brian Koberger arrest it says a statement from Brett Payne who seems to be a Which I like how they say acting peace officer within the county of Leyta, Idaho. So yeah, he's on the Moscow Police Department. So the first little part of the affidavit is super interesting. It kind of like jumps right in and details the beginning of the investigation and like the scene and it's kind of written like firsthand from this officer when he arrived on the scene. So the first thing he s- says is how they like they entered on the bottom floor. So Zana Kernodal and Ethan Chapin's bodies were found in Kernodal's room um, with obvious stab wounds on that second floor. And then it says that the officers then went upstairs to the third floor where they kind of found Kaylee Gonclave's room. And she originally had had, so she had a dog that she kind of shared with her ex boyfriend, who I think has been kind of mentioned throughout this case. And I think he was the one that had been cleared earlier in the case. But so when they first like came to the scene there was this dog was still there in her room but so they went up there and in her room there was that dog when they arrived And the bodies of Gonclaves and Madison Mogan were actually found in uh, Mogan's room. They both had stab wounds as well. And they found a tan leather knife sheath that was next to Mogan on the bed. I think it was on like at the right side if you were kind of looking from the door, I guess. This was kind of stated to be one of those like K-bar uh u.s marine corps knives that we kind of been hearing about this whole time i think people kind of because they kind of didn't release this information obviously before this affidavit but they always kind of suspected people i think on the internet that it was like a military kind of knife and i guess this sheath had like the u.s marine corps eagle globe anchor insignia thing on it as well they also in the affidavit run through how they pulled a single male dna source from um like the snap or like the little button on this sheath The next part of the affidavit kind of goes through like interviews and timelines that were built with speaking from the other two roommates. I think like kind of bouncing back to before this affidavit was released, the two roommates, everyone just kind of at least heard from the police that the two roommates were like asleep in the house and they hadn't heard anything. They didn't really know anything and they were like cleared. And that's kind of all we heard about these other two roommates. And I think at least personally, I know I was like, how the heck did they, this, all this happen And... They not hear anything, which is not like obviously blaming them at all, but it turns out that one of them did kind of hear things and they didn't have a suspect in custody yet, obviously. So it kind of makes sense that they were like, yeah, these two witnesses don't know anything just because the police officers didn't have this man in custody. So they don't want to them saying like, oh yeah, there's witnesses and put them in danger, which makes sense. Yeah, they kind of go through interviews with the roommates and they also kind of say that Kernodal received a Doordash around 4 a.m., which is pretty late, and like right ato- around the times of the murder. So they do kind of think that at least one of the victims, Kernodal, might have been awake when this attack took place. But one of the roommates, dubbed D.M. in this affidavit, originally like went to sleep in her room, which was on the second floor, which was where Kernodal and Chapin, um, the like the one guy, was murdered. Um, And she was woken up around four to what she thought was Gonclaves playing in her room upstairs with her dog that we mentioned before. And then shortly after this, she woke up to what she believes was Gonclaves, who the girl upstairs, saying that there was someone in the house. Like she was like, oh, there's some heard someone say, oh, there's someone here. The investigators also kind of outlined that this could have also been Kernodal since... She was on her phone at 4.12 a.m. on TikTok, which they like pulled from her phone as evidence. DM also looked out of her room for the first time, but did not see anyone in the house after she kind of heard that person say that like, oh, there's someone in the house. She then opened her door a second time when she thought she heard crying from Kernoldal's room, so the people that were on the same floor as her. And she heard crying and then she heard a male voice say, it's okay, I'm going to help you, which is absolutely terrifying. Can you imagine like opening your door and hearing that? But also this is like, would be a whole like other layer to this is that this is at like four in the morning. These people are sleeping. And also it was kind of released in this affidavit that at four seventeen AM, a security camera picked up like a whimper from a person and a very loud like thud. And then a bunch of like kind of dog barks And this camera was less than 50 feet from a side of Kernodal's room. So this kind of was like picked up right outside the house. The person roommate DM opened her door for the third time when she heard crying and saw a man who she described as 5'10 or taller in black clothing in a mask that like covered his mouth walking towards her. And she described him as not being very muscular but he was still like athletically built and had bushy eyebrows were kind of like the main things that stuck out to her. The man um, was walking, he walked like past her and she said she was just kind of like frozen. He walked past her and towards like a sliding glass door and then that kind of like led investigators to believe that she saw like the guy or the man exiting the scene. Investigators also found a shoe print which was kind of suspected like to have like those little diamond shaped like pattern on the bottom, kind of like they have on Vans. Which is a very popular shoe obviously if you like don't live under a rock. Everyone has vans so I don't know what that really does for you. I guess see, they know the size. It also said here that they kind of like tracked like where they were going because they like found the shoe print like a certain direction. Either way um a video canvas what they described as video canvas was done where officers collected numerous surveillance Videos from like residents and build businesses in the area. This is like a huge chunk of this affidavit. Like this goes on for like pages of them kind of detailing the movement of this white Hyundai Elantra that we kind of have heard about for the last couple weeks. Oh, there's a car honk. That's probably the first thing you heard from the street. Oh, smoky stirring. Anyway, there goes the audio quality, we're shot here. So they kind of like follow the route of this Nissan and how it kind of like has moved about and I'm not really gonna go through all that. Um, It all kind of led them to tracking the movement of this car from um, Washington State University, which I guess is like 10-ish minutes. Pretty close to the Moscow, Idaho, where the King Road residence is, where the murders took place. Also, it kind of runs through how they like narrowed down kind of the year. Like, I think it was surveillance things were a little more clear, so they could kind of narrow the year down of the car better, and they were kind of spot on with it. I mean, they have like also like FBI, I guess, like car experts. Like, that's definitely not like the technical term for it. The next thing they kind of go into are there was two different Washington State University police officers that I think they were kind of like combing through because they knew this like white Hyundai Elantra had been at Washington State. And they were kind of like looking through, I think their register just kind of like canvassing and they were finding like, oh, there's one, let's look up who this is. Two of them and like about at the same time, two separate officers, ran across a white hyundai elantra belonging to and registered to a brian Koberger, who matched the description of the man at the scene according to like the license of their database like kind of like a six foot tall dude kind of whatever build, bushy eyebrows um and then they tracked this back to a traffic stop where Koberger was like detained and gibbet. he gave his like phone number they dubbed this um phone number eight four five eight phone which is just like the last four digits of the phone number brian Koberger's phone number that was given The affidavit also runs through Koberger's story that he is a PhD student in criminology at Washington State University, and he applied for an internship with the Pullman Police Department in fall of 2022, which is interesting because that's kind of like reminiscent of like a lot of other kind of killers kind of insert themselves into these investigations or they like to, they think it's like cocky, like, oh, I'm like right under their nose, or it also kind of gives them some insight into... How these crimes are committed like i know like ed kemper was always like really buddy buddy with the police officers while he was like committing like, so many crimes Koberger posted a survey on reddit to to gain information and understanding on quote how emotions and psychological traits influence decision making when committing a crime unquote which I guess hindsight, like pretty sus looking at this, but this guy was pretty like into crime. He was like all over it. So Brian Koberger, he had gained his like master's degree in criminology from Pennsylvania DeSalle University in 2022. And he was taught by Dr. Kathleen Ramsland, who is like one of the few people and like I guess a, a leading at academic authority on BTK killings and I guess like he's one or she is one of like the few people that BTK like kind of corresponds with and has talked to and she even wrote a book. Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, BTK Killer back in like 2016, which was done with like a ton of interviews and like conversations with Rader, who another notorious piece of garbage. And there was also kind of stuff about the daughter of Dennis Rader. I guess I think her name's Carrie Rawson. She kind of like stepped forward and kind of made like some connections between this case and like her father's cases, which is kind of interesting to me. Like I feel like not a lot of children of, not even just like serial killers, but just like people who are very like, nato- like infamous, I guess, in the media come out and kind of like hit the spotlight. But she definitely like jumped out at this and she like talked to a few people. But the next part of the affidavit details search warrants that were obtained um, and they wanted to use cell towers close to that King Road residence. On November 13th of 2022, between 3 and 5 a.m., which is kind of like a little bit of frame around the murders. Then they used that same phone number that they pulled um, that they knew belonged to Koberger from that traffic stop, and they did not find that phone number was using any of the towers during this time frame. So this officer who wrote the affidavit, whose name is Brett Payne applied for a warrant for like historical phone records between November 12th and November 14th of 2022, and like 12 a.m. on both those days, and he applied for this on December 23rd for that same phone number, and the investigators put together a route using this information and theorized that Koberger had tried to conceal his location by not using his phone between 2.47 and 4.48 a.m., while he was like committing the murders at the residence to kind of like throw them off, which kind of worked. I mean, at first when that first like sweep they did from three to five, the suspect may have also returned to the crime scene because they found that that phone number utilized cell resources, which I'm guessing is just like pinged off the towers or whatever on the tower, like com- providing coverage at that King Road residence between 912 and 921. And if you remember when this first came out, that 911 call from the like the roommates didn't come till like, 11 or 12 that like in that morning. So it was a few hours after the murders and a few hours before the 911 call. So he might have like come back to the scene. They think that that same Brian Koberger's phone num- phone number was opened up in June of 2022. He had used like cell resources providing coverage to that King Road residence at least 12 times prior to November 13th. And all of them except one, is that one of them occurred in like the late evening or early morning. The next section of that document um, then goes on to tell how on December 27th of 2022, agents in Pennsylvania, which I'm assuming is FBI agents, took trash from the Coburger family residence in Albright'sville, Pennsylvania. And the trash then went to the Idaho State Lab for testing. And on December 28th, The lab reported that the DNA profile from the trash was a match to be the biological father of the persons whose DNA was found on the sheath, that like nice sheath they found in the upstairs bedrooms. The document states, quote, at least 99.9998% of the male population would be expected to be excluded from the possibility of being the suspect's biological father, unquote. So this is pretty much just saying it's extraordinarily likely that this Mr. Koberger, the like trash they pulled out, the DNA that was found on the sheath is his son. That's like pretty, that's a pretty solid percentage. That's kind of how that um, affidavit kind of wraps up. And then they kind of use all that kind of evidence to request that arrest warrant for Brian Koberger. They kind of, which is interesting reading this, it says for burglary at 1122 King Street and four counts of murder in the first degree and does burglary count as like is that breaking in or does burglary mean that it has to like they take something okay and we're back so a quick Google search of burglary definition. Burglary is the entry into a building illegally with intent to commit a crime, especially theft. So I guess it doesn't mean that he had to like take something. But it's just like illegal entry into the building wanting to commit a a crime. So, So I guess we'll kind of see how this goes. But yeah, they have this guy in custody and obviously like innocent until proven guilty. But... I guess from what it seems, I feel like... I mean, I'm obviously no expert, but I feel like there's a lot of data here and evidence here against him. So hopefully they kind of build up a solid case and everyone kind of gets to the bottom of this and we get some justice for these people. I think the most like shocking thing to me was that the roommates were... Or one of the roommates, at least, was like involved in this. Like She saw... What they presume is Brian Koberger, or she saw the suspect kind of leave. She goes kind of awake and, like, hearing this crime take place, which is terrifying and it is super scary. Like, wondering, like, I can, I mean, I'm speculating, but she saw the guy walk towards her. And it kind of said in the affidavit, it says, quote, frozen shock phase. And like the guy walked by her, which I totally, so this is like sidebar. But when I was in college, we it, we had this like big kind of party in like our town. It was called Oktoberfest, La Crosse, Wisconsin, shout out. We were like getting ready for this thing. And like before we went to class that day and kind of went out and did some did some party and i suppose i was like sitting and getting ready and me and two of my other roommates we were each like in our room kind of working on homework before like class that friday and we heard like somebody come into our house and we kind of had people come over to like drop beer up and stuff we were suspecting we we're going to be coming in and out of the house all day one of my roommates her room kind of faced our living room so she heard the somebody walk in and she like looked down into the living room and saw what was someone we didn't know it was like a 35 40 year old guy Just like standing in our living room and he was kind of like muttering to himself So she like got up and quickly ran into like the room next to her Which was my other roommate's room and they like hid in there and my room was kind of like tucked off in like a corner Where like you kind of like go down this little like not a hallway but like a little jettison off the living room And I had my door just like Cracked and I kind of heard like my door open and my roommate walked into my room all the time And I like kind of looked up from my desk to like suspect it was her and it was just this like same this like older man like looking around my this little wall like to my desk and I literally just sat there and froze like everyone thinks that if something like scary happens to you you'll like react really fast and like bust out some kung fu moves and know exactly what to do or like call 911 run right away and that's like not the case I definitely like I can imagine like this would be the scariest thing to let you walk out at 4 a.m. and see some dude walking towards you. Like, I don't know. It's just very scary to think that she kind of knew this and then after the fact had to live with like a few weeks knowing that my roommates were murdered and I saw the guy and what if he saw me? That's just very scary, which it makes sense looking back why the officer said that she had not heard anything or not seen anything To kind of um, protect her until they got the suspect in custody. Either way, hopefully we'll kind of probably still keep, keep up on this. I mean, this is kind of our flagship case, I guess, we're covering on this. Because I think I've talked about this every episode. But if you want to read the affidavit, I used the CNN staff article that kind of included it. I also used a New York Times article by Mike Baker that kind of like breaks down its like 10 key revelations in this case, and that's pretty good if you don't want to read the whole thing. It kind of goes through like the 10 big things that they kind of have learned recently. If you want to look at the daughter of BTK, her um, kind of connection to this, and the talk about the connection between that professor and him, it is an independent article and the interview is done by Brevin Hurley. Yeah, that's kind of the this update on that case. I guess we can kind of transition into the short little mini case that I picked for this week and I'm already at like half an hour so I mean I guess this is kind of going to work out good because this one is I thought it was really interesting. I mean I was obviously like I said before gonna do like different like kind of more in-depth kind of a historical thing, but I need I want to do more work on it so it looks a little better and sounds uh, sound better. You can't see anything. I kind of was like bumming around. You know, I'm a new Tennessee resident and I was kind of looking around for like some Nashville crime, but I think I need to kind of delve into that more and do some better research because I wanted something maybe like either true crime or like haunting. And I a found that there's a bunch of Nashville ghost tours which I'm definitely going to go on and maybe that'll like give me a little inspiration and get me a new case to kind of talk about for that but I think I'm gonna maybe here and there do maybe a Tennessee or like a an Appalachian mountain kind of area crime situation but the case that I kind of stumbled upon is a cold case still But it's the murder of mary hankins so this occurred on march 31st of 1951 which is like a saturday evening so fred hankins returned home to find his wife of four and a half years mary dead from a gunshot wound to her head so frank was getting his car repaired or like visiting a shop um, in fountain city nearby while mary was making dinner at home which was reportedly a chicken which i'm sure was pretty tasty but honestly i feel like 50s cooking was not good. I just got done reading this book. What was it called? Oh it's called The Dollhouse by Fiona Davis and I got it from one of those little free libraries just kind of browsing and I like dropped some books off in one and I picked this one up and it was pretty good. It definitely killed my attention. They taught it kind of also like takes place in that same like 50s time period. The character in this book like meets up and one of the meals they describe is like a jello salad and it has like celery and like beans and stuff in jello and I'm like why in the 50s did they have to put everything in jello and I feel like it also said like talks about in this book how they did never want to put like spices and stuff like one of the characters was a like aspiring chef and he wanted was in the war none of this is true this is a fiction book but he was like in the war and he brought back like all these spices and these recipes and people were like this is disgusting why is this so exciting but i feel like cooking in the 50s was just like not good like my great grandma was when was she born I think she was born in 1914 she's deceased now rest in peace go lonora just like hearing like my grandparents talk about cooking when they were kids or like her talking about her cooking it just doesn't sound like they branched out a lot but i'm not dissing this woman's cooking i'm just going on a tangent about how i bet chicken in the 50s tasted pretty chickeny There was evidence of a struggle before the gunman presumably shot Mary and so the gunshot wound was almost from like a straight down angle above her left ear and it kind of said that the bolt like lodged above one of her eyes and when she was found by her husband she was lying on her right side and it was presumed that the gunman shot Mary while she was on the floor due to like this downward angle or else... They don't really know why this would have been this angle standing. Must have been like a giraffe. But the details of the case were provided to the papers. And according to the county coroner on the case, who is Cindy Wolfenbarger, the papers provided readers with details that authorities would never, ever make public today. So it's this, I guess they kind of released a lot of information, pretty much all, everything they had on this case. It seems um, right away. And during the struggle, it was said she might have tried to escape by the steps leading down to the basement garage. And this was determined that There was like blood that kind of like dripped down the stairs, but it wasn't splattered. So I guess like it came from her while she was kind of going down the stairs and not from her getting hit and it like flying down the stairs. My, you know, expertise on blood splatter. Has anyone watched Dexter? I really enjoyed that show. I thought it was really good. The actor, what is his name? I haven't seen him in, um... Any really other shows, honestly? I wonder if he really, Michael C. Hall, he's really good, but he was like a blood splatter expert wasn't that show, wasn't he? So they also found a dish towel on the couch, which was, the couch was facing a large like living room picture window, that from the window you could see Mary's body from outside the house, and she also had like a scrape on her left arm, And none of the neighbors heard a gunshot, and some of the officers speculated that the killer had used this dishcloth that they found on the couch as, like, a makeshift silencer. And I guess this case is also, they talk about how it's kind of old, and it had some pretty shoddy police work, it seems, because a lot of the evidence and stuff they're using now to kind of relook at the case is from stuff they like find in the library and i guess like the police records for this are not very good and the evidence is all gone it kind of seems like a hot mess but you could think that they would just know like do you use it as a silencer do they like wrap it around like the outs like the barrel or do they shoot through it because wouldn't there be like a hole in it if they used it as if they put it on the end because like when you see i guess this is something from movies but when you see in movies they use like a pillow as a silencer which i don't really think that works that well i mean maybe it does and i just don't know anything about silencers but they like it goes like they shoot through it to kind of absorb the sound anyway the um husband fred found his wife called an ambulance they carried her to st mary's hospital where she later died it said like a half hour later it sounds as if she was alive when fred found her but was not able to tell anybody any clues or any names as to who was her murderer. Fred had later discovered that Mary's watch was missing, but the rest of the house was basically untouched. So they kind of like ruled it out as they don't really think it was a robbery. The neighbors and relatives also were very like concerned after Mary's death. And they kind of like tramped through the house before officers secured the crime scene, which like basically probably destroyed like all the evidence that they could have pulled. And the detectives also did not dust for fingerprints. And this was like in a time for DNA evidence. So... Fingerprints was really the only thing they could really, like, link stuff with, you know? And First Term Sheriff C.W. Buddy Jones began investigating and stated, I'm not going to bed until we crack this case. And that turned out to be a bad thing to say. So this Mary Hankins was a housewife that worked at Standard Knitting Mill, which doesn't, that not make her a housewife. I think it's just they always classify women in, like, the 50s as a housewife. But... It says this woman had a job, so that doesn't make her a housewife. Either way, and she didn't have any they didn't have any children, but she also taught Sunday school and she married her high school sweetheart. Her and her husband's relationship was pretty upstanding. They had married on in November of 1946 when she was 23, and he, Fred, was twenty-six, and her maiden name was originally Mary Tabler. They moved into a new brick house in this like kind of upstart neighborhood in 1950. Mary was twenty-seven years old when she was murdered. And the day of her murder, they kind of spent it doing yard work on their house. And it was just kind of a normal day. And this kind of, like, shocked the people because this was... Knoxville was kind of... I didn't say this. This whole thing took place in Knoxville, which is, like, you know, a town in Tennessee, whatever. That's the whole reason I picked this, yada, yada, yada. Bad storyteller. Either way. So this was kind of like an upstart little, like, new neighborhood in Knoxville. And they hadn't really had any crime like this before. And so the, this murder kind of made people in the neighborhood, like, begin to lock their doors. They were kind of scared when, like, they heard a knock at their door and they were nervous about strangers, stranger danger. But it was kind of unheard, unheard of in this, like, Fountain City area. And the really only break occurred in this case was when a thirty two caliber Colt Pearl handed, handled, handed, handled revolver was found in a creek um, by a farmer and his son who was washing their car in the creek off of the Norris Freeway. Sheriff um, Jones confirmed the gun's bullets matched those that killed Mary. So I guess they did the, like, ballistics, maybe. was Did they have ballistics back then? Is that what it's still called? The gun was found to be very old. mean they say it was, like, several decades old and had five bullets in the chamber and one was dispensed. So they believe this was, like, the murder weapon. And the FBI crime lab found fingerprints on, like, the brass casings of the undispensed shells or bullets, whatever, but it seems since the scene was never tested for prints, they didn't really have any way to match this to any prints that they found at the scene, which, you know, really sucks, and so this kind of turns out to be a Knoxville cold case. The Knox County Sheriff Jones was scrutinized for never catching the murderer, and it kind of ended up contributing to him losing his job. They had a lot of dead ends in this case. The husband was interviewed, obviously, right away, and he even wrote a letter to Sheriff Jones as he was interviewed like twice and cleared about a year after Mary died. And this was published in the Knoxville Journal and in this letter, Fred reminded Sheriff Jones that he always cooperated with the case and even submitted like a lie detest- lie detector test and fingerprints, even while being subjected to suspicion. I think a lot of the people around the town at the time definitely thought that he was the murderer. He, I guess, kind of remained in the public eye and under suspicion until like he died. He even offered to take like sodium thiopental, which is sometimes known as like a truth serum to try to assure Jones of his quality operation. Fred eventually remarried and died quickly. I think it was before his like 80th birthday in the same hospital that his widowed, widowy widower. What do you, I know a widower is a dude. A widow is a girl. What is the person that made the person a widow or a widow? Mary, his murdered wife, had died in previously. A neighbor had seen a man in a tall blue, in. A tall man in a blue suit enter the home, stayed for about 35 to 40 minutes, and then drive away quickly in a dark colored car. And this is kind of suspect to me because she saw this whole thing and was obviously paying attention, but didn't hear a gunshot. Like, where were you this whole time? This neighbor described the man as tall, lanky, and slightly stooped. And she said that his like darker colored car had Knox County tags. So we're looking for our local people. And it was said that Mary Hankins let the man in willingly and did not like cry for help, which Mary's friends say this is kind of out of character for her because she was kind of cautioned she normally wouldn't open the door to a stranger. Um, again, that was according to her friends. A known daytime burglar and jewelry thief known to Knoxville was James W. Llewellyn, and he drove kind of a dark-colored Ford, but wasn't known to ever be violent or use violence. Investigators never fully tied him to the crime, even though he was kind of continuously brought up as a suspect. And they even kind of, in his like last arrest, they kind of suspected him, but he, by the time he died, he was never convicted or named. I guess they kind of also suspected like a cousin at some point, but they kind of never really got any solid suspects or leads, but two years after Mary's death, a woman claimed that a man had driven her to the Hankins' house the day of the murder. A South Carolina man was brought to Knox County for about a week where he sat in jail where he claimed innocence. Ray Jenkins, a well-known defense attorney at the time, took the case and convinced the magistrate that the man was in North Carolina in a forest when the murder took place and that he was innocent. The woman claimed that the man, who was a traveling painter and magazine salesman, which sounds like a crazy combo of jobs to have, returned to the car after he came out of the Hankins' house and told her, I just had to shoot a woman, I'll kill you if you ever open your mouth. Which sounds pretty suspect, but yeah, this, this guy was never convicted, they still did not solve the case and sheriff jones kind of worked on was very dedicated to this case he was determined to solve this case and even put a hundred dollars of his own money towards the reward the knoxville mayor a local grocer and a broadcaster named Cass walker also like contributed their own money towards the reward for Sheriff Jones was not helped very much by the Knoxville police officers, so Sheriff Jones, like the sheriff, was supposed to kind of have jurisdiction over this case, but it sounds like the Knoxville police at the time kind of ran a parallel investigation, and Sheriff Jones said that they weren't very forthcoming with some information, so... That was kind of like a little bit of a roadblock is the two jurisdictions not really cooperating apparently very well with each other. Jones also ran for re-election a year and a half after this murder. The more conservative Knoxville Journal remarked on the lack of progress in the case and dubbed the sheriff um, Sleepless Jones as he vowed not to sleep, you know, and until the taste was solved. And this really kind of like came back to bite him in the butt because he was like, called sleepless jones constantly sheriff jones was a democrat so this kind of more conservative knoxville journal newspaper seemed to kind of rip on him a lot and Mally tabler mary's mother bought an ad in the new sentinel in august of 1952 expressing her gratitude towards sheriff jones in response to this like knoxville journal kind of like bashing him continuously and jones ended up losing his reelection and then just dipped out of town and moved to florida which great plan the next sheriff, Austin Kate, um, also kind of said he was going to keep an eye and try to solve this case. And he never really could either. As I said before, like most of the information is from like historians or old newspaper archives. So there's really just the evidence on this case is not super sound. And this still remains a cold case to this day. But yeah, this, that was the cold case of Mary Hankins. And that just is like really sad. Those, I wonder, there's probably just so many of those cases out there that are just kind of sitting there just stewing, waiting to be solved. And I mean, what, it's like 70 years since this has happened, so who knows? But I got most of my information from this from an Appalachian Unsolved article and then some of it from a Knox News article by Matt Lankin. But but yeah, so a case that hopefully is going to get solved here pretty soon and a case that hope, like unfortunately probably will not get solved. Thanks for, you know, hanging in here we're we're getting back on track new year new place we're gonna be you know just throwing podcasts around we're gonna be just researching up a storm but but anyway i hope everyone's you know new year is going swell 2022 what a year 2023 we'll see how it goes but yeah y'all have a fantastic day we'll talk to you next time